Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 34, The Servant of the Lord. And in this episode, what I would like to do is pull together a lot of different themes that I have been weaving together already throughout this entire podcast. We're going to return to the Old Testament primarily in this episode, particularly to the book of Isaiah, as Isaiah begins to sprinkle through a theme that he raises as he calls someone in the Old Testament the servant of the Lord. And what I'd like to do is take a little bit of time to look at the nature of biblical prophecy, how it can be easily misunderstood. I would also like to tie together the way that Jesus, in fact, embodies the calling of Israel as an entire nation, as we've looked at in episode 31. And then I would like to explain why it is that the man on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 that we looked at in episode one of this podcast, why they so easily missed Jesus when he came. You see, the heart of what Isaiah is going to address in the latter chapters of his book is precisely why the men on the road to Emmaus missed Jesus and why we must rightly understand what Isaiah is saying in order to rightly understand Jesus. And then, of course, the purpose of every one of my podcasts is not just that you would unbind the Bible from the many ways it's been misread and misapplied, but that you would rightly apply it to your own life and to the lives of other Christians. And so I am eager to jump into this. I hope that you will be able to track with me because we both have a lot to learn um, from what Isaiah presents us in his book. So let's jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, I'd like to say a few words actually about a concept that I discovered when I was preaching the sermon that I presented on this podcast as episode number 28, the Rebuking the Mighty Waters sermon. I'd like to to reference back to Isaiah chapter 17, which was a passage that I had discovered the week I was preparing that sermon, and for me personally was the first time I had ever encountered a look at prophecy through the lens of those handful of verses. And so let me just reread two of the verses from Isaiah 17 that do in fact shape the way you and I think about prophecy and ultimately how we come to understand what Jesus is coming to do, what God intends to do in bringing judgment on the enemies of God, but also blessing to his own people. So in Isaiah 17, verse 12, it says, Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. And if you're following along in this podcast each week, you have heard episode 28. Um, you listened to that sermon. But if you haven't, or if you've forgotten, which is quite possibly the case as well, you remember that I posed a question in the middle of verse 13 where it tells us that the nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. I posed the question in that sermon, which was new to me, I had had that question posed to me, I believe, by God himself when I realized as I was reading through the passage, is God going to rebuke the nations or is he going to rebuke their roaring? Is he going to deal with the nation's threats 
Or is he going to deal with the nations themselves? Is he going to put an end to the nation's roaring and the nation's abuse of other people? Or is he going to put an end to the people themselves? And as I shared in episode 28, the way Isaiah 17 is written, we simply do not know. It's left a little bit hazy. It's left a little bit fuzzy. And yet we were also shown, as I believe is very, very true, the Jews themselves firmly believed that God was going to rebuke the peoples. And by rebuke, I mean wipe them out. The way God deals with enemies is with a bigger stick, right? If they've got a stick and they're threatening God's people, God will deal with them swift retribution, swift punishment. And in fact, many of the Israelites, many of the disciples of Jesus even, were very eagerly anticipating God bringing fire from heaven from the mouths of James and John to destroy the enemies of God or those who were resisting Jesus's work in any way. And of course, in the way Jesus tells the stories in the Gospels, we see him not as interested in destroying the peoples as in removing the things that are causing disruption in the world because God does not desire the death of anyone. And if you hold on to that, what you realize is as you read this prophecy from Isaiah, it is left ambiguous on purpose. You do not know if God is going to destroy the peoples or if he is going to destroy their roaring. You do not understand that completely until you come to the New Testament. And in fact, that's one of the biggest principles I could possibly point out to you about biblical prophecy, and it is that it is always somewhat ambiguous, and that the New Testament claims that Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament, many prophecies of which sound like they have nothing at all to do with Jesus. Now, we're familiar of a handful of them that are related to Jesus, but prophecy in general is not simply these one-to-one correlating predictions of the future that Jesus just comes in and it's, it's green lights everywhere and, and stars going off to, to highlight that I'm the guy. That there clearly was a lot of confusion. And as I shared in episode one, there was a lot of confusion regarding who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And this is really why I want to go back into the book of Isaiah, into the second half of his book, the chapters 40 through 55, where the Lord has has been speaking for 39 chapters through Isaiah about Israel's waywardness, about their idolatry, about their injustice, about the reason why exile and banishment from the land is going to come to them, why they are going to see certain discipline and certain punishment, why they're going to be removed from their land because of their sinfulness, because of their refusal to rightly image the Lord, because of their refusal to love their neighbors as themselves, because of their unwillingness and ability to properly represent God to the world. He is going to send them into exile. And in the latter half of the book of Isaiah, it is filled with tremendous promises of blessing, future consequences and discipline and punishment on those who continue to remain the enemies of God. But starting in chapter 42 of Isaiah, Isaiah introduces us to this concept of the servant. Someone who is going to faithfully serve the Lord and is going to faithfully serve the world. And we know from God's commission originally to Adam and Eve that that commission was once given to all humanity. 
And of course, humanity dropped the ball and did not carry it in the direction that God wanted. And so God calls Abram and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Israel steps in the place of all humanity in order to bring God's blessing to the world. But as Isaiah 1 through 39 very, very clearly show, and sadly show, actually, if you take the time to read it, it is very, very discouraging. The indictment after indictment after indictment of many things that are just woven throughout human nature about the way we are to treat one another and how deplorably Israel actually does at at carrying that out. He offers to them basically saying, we need to have someone who's going to rightly represent me to the world. And so beginning in Isaiah 42, And then a few chapters throughout, there are four distinct times where this servant of the Lord is referenced as being some type of leader, some one, some group who is going to restore the world's view of God, who's going to rightly image God, who's going to rightly be a witness to the Lord, to the world of who the Lord actually is. And so in Isaiah 42... We read in the first handful of verses, the the first time that Isaiah introduces us to this servant, and it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And he is, um, this is the Lord himself speaking through Isaiah as, as we read these words. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Now that's a pretty powerful description. This is the description of my servant in whom my soul delights, or in whom I am well pleased. This is another way that 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 phrase is is often described. And it's somebody who is going to bring forth justice, who will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And when we think of justice, we think of someone who's coming to make everything right. Someone who's coming to restore the things that are wrong, to aid those who are being oppressed or who are being mistreated. And in fact, that's exactly what we read when he says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's not going to draw attention to himself. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You know, bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks are oftentimes, as far as we're concerned, not really good for anything. But he's saying he will look at some of the smallest flickering flames of people desperately in need of restoration and justice, and he will not extinguish those faintly burning wicks. He will, in fact, breathe new life into them so that they can burn brighter and stronger than ever before. Now, this is a powerful image, and the Jews in Jesus's day knew about this passage. They knew that the servant is some awesome view of someone who is going to come and who is going to do right by the people. He is going to lead them into a point of victory. And yet, as I shared about prophecy and it being somewhat hard to understand at times, it's very weird because a few verses later in Isaiah 42, we read this. Hear, you deaf, 
And look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Now, (laughs) as I read through Isaiah chapter 42, that second little section of verses that I just read sounds really strange to me. Because the servant of the Lord in the first four verses of Isaiah 42 sounds awesome. He's going to bring justice. He's not going to, you know, push people aside that everybody else is pushing aside. He's going to make things done the right way. He's going to not get discouraged until he properly brings forth justice in the world. This is sort of this conquering, victorious view of what this servant is going to do. But then in verses 18 to 20 of Isaiah 42, talk about a pathetic picture of God's servant. Hear you deaf, who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is as blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Now, when I read this, I think to myself, now, I guess I could go back into my archives of the way I think prophecy works and imagine Jesus being a fulfillment of the first part of Isaiah 42, but goodness gracious, he better not be the prediction or the prophecy or the promised one being described in, in chapter in verse verses 18 through 20. Jesus being blind, being deaf, unable to even see what the Lord is doing. Who then is this servant of the Lord? Well, we read on a few more verses through Isaiah. We, we pick up particularly in the next chapter was this very interesting phrase that is the Lord speaking to his own people. And he tells them, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. So you are my witnesses, um, plural, is exactly who Israel is to become. But the verse itself ends with, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Now here, it sounds strange that the Lord is speaking to Israel, calling them his witnesses, but then also calling them his servant. Again, you have to continue through Isaiah to what the, is actually the second servant song and one that I am, I'm going to show you the reason why I'm bringing these to your attention in just a moment, but allow me to read what is Isaiah's second servant song. One that begins to clarify a little bit just regarding who this servant is and what his role will be. So let me read for you Isaiah 49, the first six verses. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, 
It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, when we come to Isaiah 49, especially after reading both passages in Isaiah 42, we start to get a little more clarity as to the answer to our dilemma. Who is the servant of the Lord? In verse 3 of Isaiah 49, we are told flat out, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But then in verse 6 of that exact same passage, we are told that this servant, who is Israel, will be someone who is sent to Israel to bring them back to the Lord. And so all of a sudden, we begin to see a little bit more clarity here. We begin to see that the servant is Israel. The servant has always been Israel. But yet this particular servant is someone who is going to bring Israel back to God. And so if you follow this logic, you understand exactly why I had a handful of podcast episodes where I was working what I felt like was fairly tirelessly to show you that Jesus as Israel's representative head is both Israel and Israel's leader. And we don't make that up from the New Testament alone. This is embedded and woven very, very heavily and very consistently throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 49 is one of the clearest instances. This servant of the Lord is Israel and is also someone sent to Israel. And so for the first time, Isaiah 49, I think, connects the two seemingly opposite views of the servant that Isaiah presented us with in Isaiah 42. We have someone who is, in fact, blind, who is the Lord's servant, who is deaf, who cannot hear. And we have a servant of the Lord who will not rest until he brings justice to the nations. Now, the big question on everybody's mind is, what will it take to bring justice to a blind and deaf servant of the Lord? That's a crucial question to ask. What will it take to become someone who is tirelessly bringing forth justice to the weak and to the oppressed? Again, we're not fully told. But we flip the page to the next chapter, and in Isaiah chapter 50, there is a further description of this servant. And he is not simply someone who is only a light or who is only tireless or who only works very, very difficult and very with, you know, with a lot of authority and a lot of power. It says in verse five of of Isaiah 50, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And the passage goes on from there. Now here, it appears that the servant of the Lord is someone who is very courageous, very tireless, very fearless in his approach to restoring justice. He is, in fact, someone who embodies all of the people of Israel himself, but also represents them to restore them. And yet this servant, in some sense, is not only fearless, but has to be this way because he is going to receive tremendous opposition to become the very thing that he is. 
And so we, we, we continue to track, continue to pick up more themes. And then the final servant song is the f- servant song from Isaiah, which is the, the easiest one to understand because it is the most familiar. And I won't read the entire passage, but you know it as Isaiah 52 verse 13 through Isaiah 53 verse 12. And is it, it is a description of this servant in all of his glory, but it is an incredibly ugly, suffering picture of a servant. And here's how it begins in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. We skip down to verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the final time in Isaiah's book that he speaks about the servant of the Lord. And if we take each one in turn, what we get is a richer and richer picture as we go of what the servant of the Lord will do. But the picture begins with a conquering servant bent on justice, one who will not rest until justice has actually come. We then find out in Isaiah 49 that this servant is Israel and is also someone who is sent to Israel to be a light for the nations that God's salvation may come to the ends of the earth. In chapter 50, we we start to see, though, that the pushback that this servant will receive from the very people to whom he is sent is going to be great. They're going to want to pluck out his beard. They are going to want to spit on him and to smack him. And in Isaiah 52 and 53, we are shown an incredibly discouraging picture of someone who is abused, who is ridiculed, who is beaten, who is mocked, who is flat out rejected and hung out to dry because the people despise what he's come to do to such an extent that they insist on getting rid of him. This is the image we have of the servant of the Lord. It is Israel, but it is also someone sent to Israel. And the reason why this is so significant and the reason why it is that Israel did not understand their Messiah when he came was because they were latching on to the view of a servant as a conquering ruler. Nowhere in these passages talking about the servant are we speaking about the Messiah or the coming king or the coming ruler or the coming conqueror. But the people of Israel were very intent that this was the kind of person that was going to come. This was the kind of person that was going to shut up the roaring of the nations, if you will, who was going to turn them into chaff and cast them far away, who was going to rebuke the nations, who was going to defeat their enemies, who was going to deal with everything in this world that was wrong and make it right again. 
It's just that they had a particular view in mind of how that was going to happen. And Jesus did not fit the bill. The reason then why the two men on the road to Emmaus rejected Jesus, or rather did not know it was the Messiah when Jesus actually came, was because of other passages in the Old Testament that promised the coming Messiah in a powerful, kingly, ruling type of way. And one of those passages is actually found in Psalm chapter 2. And it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now Psalm chapter 2 is one of the most exciting passages to one of the, to the Jews of of the Old Testament time waiting for the day when God would declare to his king you are my son today I have begotten you and this passage would actually often be read at the installation of a new king of Israel reminding them again as we've already talked about that the king was an embodiment of and also time oftentimes known as the son of God well Jesus didn't seem to fit the bill of this ruling, conquering king because he was rejected and he suffered and he endured all kinds of mistreatment and he was eventually killed. That does not sound like a Lord who is holding the nations in derision, laughing at their rejection of him as he magnificently and powerfully and exultingly puts his king on the throne and shows the world that they all need to bow to him. This was the image that the Israelites had in their mind of what the coming king from God would look like and what he would be like. And it's no doubt in my mind that they would have melted these images of the one who's coming to bring justice to the earth and to restore power back to the Israelite people. This is how they found themselves interpreting passages like Isaiah 42. And yet what I love about particularly what Matthew does with his gospel in the New Testament is he opens it up by very closely connecting Jesus as a descendant of David, the greatest son of God, enthroned as God's king and Israel's greatest king. And so as you begin to read Matthew's gospel, and Matthew makes no mistake about it, that Jesus is in fact the son of David. He is Israel's great king. But he does something really, really interesting in the end of Matthew chapter 3. And I read this section to you a few times ago in a different episode when we were looking at the temptation of Jesus, but I chose at that time not to make any reference to this verse in particular, but I'd rather do so now. And here's what we read in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. 
And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here is the thrust of what I want you to grasp from this week's episode. The statement made by the voice from heaven to Jesus when the Spirit descended upon him was this. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Those, that statement is actually quotations from two separate Old Testament passages. The first is from Psalm chapter 2, which I just read to you. The one that says, this is my beloved son. That is the passage coming from Psalm chapter 2, which is showing that this is in fact the son of God, the um, reigning and anointed new king of the Lord, the one who's going to conquer and who's going to be victorious. The question that was never on anyone's mind was how exactly is this king going to conquer? How exactly is he going to restore justice to the nations? How exactly is his tireless efforts going to be displayed in this world? How is it that this king is going to be raised up, lifted up, exalted, and be given the place to rule over all the earth? How is it going to happen? Most people don't ask that question because it seems obvious. Well, he's going to come in. He's going to wipe out the enemies. He's going to destroy them, and he's going to raise to, you know, to a position of power. But according to Matthew 3, and the voice that comes out of heaven it, it starts this way. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The with whom I am well pleased is a quotation from Isaiah 42 verse 1. The very first passage that I read to you from the servant songs in Isaiah. Nobody in the first century was prepared for this statement. No one was prepared that the coming Messiah, the coming ruler, the coming king would be the same person as this suffering servant who's come to bring forth justice. Someone who is a representative of Israel, both as its king and also as its servant, but is also someone who is sent to Israel. And who in fact is it? Who are the very people who are the ones who, according to Isaiah 50, pluck out the beard and whip this man with reeds? Who is it, according to Isaiah 52, who causes this person to suffer and abuses him with stripes and mars his appearance so that no one can recognize him? It is, in fact, Israel. It is the servant to whom the servant is sent who does the damage. And what is absolutely stunning about this is what you find in the temptation that follows this passage in Matthew 3 immediately. The enemy comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, make these stones into bread. And we walk through what all of these temptations mean, but I want you to focus in for just a second on the final temptation. He offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he will bow down and worship him. What he is offering to Jesus is a chance to be enthroned as the king from Psalm chapter 2 without enduring the suffering of Isaiah 42 first. What he is saying is you can in fact become the king without having to go through the suffering first. 
And yet, as Isaiah 49 pointed out, the purpose of this servant, who is Israel, but who is being sent to Israel, the purpose of this servant is to be a light to the nations so that God's salvation may come to the ends of the earth. That is the purpose of this servant. The purpose of this servant is to be a light for the nations. Someone who will embody who God is, rightly representing the Lord God to the world and to Israel, and showing them exactly who he is and what he's like. And so with every single temptation, the enemy is offering to Jesus the chance to act as a king would act, serve yourself, turn these stones into bread, jump off the pinnacle of the temple, make God prove that he loves you, that he cares for you, highlight yourself, exalt yourself, make a name for yourself. And in rejecting every one of those temptations, Jesus simply says that he is perfectly content and perfectly willing to rule as a king through suffering, death, shame, rejection, betrayal, and on and on and on. This is the way the king will restore justice to the world in a tireless fashion. This is the way a king will become a light to the nations so that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what it means to be a suffering king. This is what it means to be the Lord's servant. This is what it means to be the son of God. And Jesus wraps all of these themes up so tightly, and I've taken the time in this week's episode to focus in specifically on this because nothing is more important in my understanding than for us to know who Jesus is. And Matthew takes tons of time. He talks about it in chapter 8. He talks about it in chapter 18. Sprinkled all throughout Matthew's gospel, he gives us these little clues along the way, quoting back to these servant songs of Isaiah to remind us this is what was done to fulfill. We, we placed all of our iniquities onto him. You know, Jesus heals someone of a fever. And, and, and in Matthew chapter 8, he heals Peter's mother-in-law with a fever. And it says, then, then they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Well, he's simply here quoting from Isaiah 53 verse 4. Jesus embodies this, and by doing this, he brings forth justice to the nations. And so these are concepts that, 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 that are intended to be held together incredibly tightly, and yet in our own human nature, we reject the connection of these things without even thinking. In our minds, to rule, to reign, to conquer, to be victorious is all glory, it's all magnificence, it's all success, it, it doesn't involve any suffering, it doesn't involve any hard work, it doesn't involve any tripping and falling and failing, it doesn't involve any rejection. But Jesus grabs the two themes and says, to fully embody the image of God, to define what it means to rule the world well, it involves both of these things in perfect harmony and in perfect union. And this is central for you and I to grasp. 
as Jesus invites us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him, this theme of the servant of the Lord and the way Jesus embodies what it means to be the son of God enthroned as king and to be the suffering servant of the Lord who brings Israel back to God, this will define perfectly what it means to be a human being made in the image of God, restored by Jesus Christ, and a follower of Jesus. We can't separate them. And our entire life of growth as a Christian will be in coming to understand more clearly what does it really look like to suffer and to rule well simultaneously. What does it mean? How does it work? That's the point of the New Testament. And I'm afraid that there are many, many Christians who are reading their New Testaments wrongly because they do not hold these two themes together when they read. And so we're very eager to see God's judgment and criticism on those who don't agree with us and not as open to receiving his rebuke ourselves for ways in which our own lives are still misguided, still looking for all the glory and none of the difficulty. It's a life that's unparalleled to anything in this world. But it's one that will not come unless, as I shared in last week's episode, we are born from above. We receive life from outside ourselves. Life that Jesus promises to give all those who seek him and ask for it. It's a life that only he can grant to us, but it's a life that is literally worth dying for. And so that's all the time we have for this week's episode. I am very, very excited to get to the ones coming. I'm going to, I hope to encourage you, but I hope some of the things that I share in weeks to come may even surprise you. Um, This may be the time when some of you will start to disagree, and I would love to hear those comments as well as things that you're finding helpful as you continue to tune in. So that's all we have for this week. See you next time.